Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us this very special event with uh, Mia Love, dear friend, former Congresswoman from Utah, one of the great people to be in, who served in Washington, and she's a has been associated with the United States Study Center. She was last in Australia about 18 months ago, and uh, she can't wait to get back, and we can't wait to have her hosted back in Australia again. Um, as we begin, uh, I, of course, want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this platform sits today, the, uh, get the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country with that you, where you are on and pay respects as well to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And so, Mia, it's just wonderful to welcome you here. Uh, this is something we've wanted to do for a long time. Actually, this conversation is like, just forget that there are a couple hundred people on the line, and we just want to talk to each other, right, <laughs> about what's going on. Exactly. And um, I, I just want to, so why don't we just start, just a quick update over the past year, what you've been doing. You have some professional, new professional associations. You've been on CNN, and just a little snapshot of your activities right. over yeah, so um, I've been enjoying my time with my family. First of all, I have three wonderful children. One got married last year. Um, because of COVID, we've had to go through a major process. It wasn't like a one-day thing. I call it the five-part mini-series because we had to do it in bits and pieces. And anyway, it's just, um, we ha I have an amazing son-in-law. Um, who's joined the family and uh, we've I've just enjoyed being a mom. I've been a regular political commentator on CNN. That has kept me busy for a while. As you can imagine, there's a lot going on in the United States, politics wise and even policy wise, um, new ideas, new administration, a lot of turmoil, turmoil um, insurrection uh, and, and violence at the Capitol, which was absolutely a horrible um, experience for everyone in the United States. And I also had the opportunity to teach last semester at Georgetown University, where I had students from all ends of the spectrum, um, but the majority of them were pretty progressive and will probably end up being in my life forever because they're just incredible uh, students that were there to learn. Um, I, what I love about education and what I love about universities and uh, my affiliation with the United States Study Center is we are always discovering. And I love being in an environment where we don't know all the answers, but by golly, we're going to try and peel the onion and try and discover to, it together. We're going to give our, our, our friends today a few answers on some things. Um, yeah. Before yeah. we get into uh, so contemporary politics, there are two breaking news stories in Australia this morning. Uh, one, from the, one from the United States, one from here. Uh, here, there is a big move against big tech in Australia. Uh, Facebook and Google. Uh, they use uh, news feeds from traditional media companies and have not compensated them for it. Uh, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is the equivalent of like the Federal Trade Commission, the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department, has, has studied this for a long time, issued a landmark report last year to try and get some equity back in the relationship between big tech companies and media companies. And uh, legislation is pending that will likely pass parliament this week codifying the payment by these companies to mainstream media companies for the news they use, Sydney Morning Herald, News Limited, television stations here and so forth. 
Um, Google or originally said, we're you do that to us, we're out of here. We're, we're going to take our search engine someplace else. Um, and Facebook had took a similar posture. In recent days, however, Google has come back to the table and they're striking deals with media companies, like paying them like the Nine Network here, one of the three television networks, 30 million a year for the use of Nine uh, and Channel 7, 30 million a year for the use of their but Facebook today announced that they're closing the uh, news feeds from Australian international sources to Australian users of Facebook. So this is a really big deal. And it's, it's going on this morning and will have major political implications. And I, I don't wanna ask you about really what's happening here, but I'd love to listen to you on what's occurring, big tech in Washington. It's a huge issue. And right. I'd really like reflections on its political standings how does Silicon Valley stand politically, those two companies in Washington? Yeah. What are the threats and how do you see it? So two things I wanted to discuss. I wanted to answer or at least just weigh in a little bit on what you're and what you were talking about. I think that it is important for all of us to try and preserve information going back and forth. I mean, that's how we keep in touch with each other. That's how we um, know what's going on. That's how I feel like I can hang out with you. Um, at the same time, even though we are just, we couldn't be further away from each other. I think that that's incredibly important. Um, one of the things that I, I hope that uh, we don't see Google doing is passing on the cost. A lot of times these big tech companies end up passing on the cost to the user or the consumer, and it incentivizes people not to look up the information, um, especially if they're being charged for it. So hopefully with the funds that they're making, they can see the benefits in um, the exchange of information. In, in terms of the United States, and um, I, I think that there's a really interesting dynamic that's going on with big tech. They are becoming a too big to fail type of entity. Um, as, as a matter of fact, when they band together or they make a decision, it's very difficult for anybody um, including public or private sector to, to do anything. It's kind of a monopoly in a way when they band together that it's hard to um, make sure that there, there aren't advantages. Um, they will do everything that they possibly can, obviously, to uh, try and be as, to preserve as much of their um, funds as possible. Um, however, it's become, it's become an issue where a lot of people are seeing these tech companies as as a monopoly and and one that you can't you can't really reckon with and it's actually joining it's one of the areas that i think both the left and the right side um, have joined together because that exchange of information the first amendment um the ability for people to exchange thoughts and ideas that, that that's become and information and you've got and important and when you've got these gatekeepers that are so incredibly powerful um, they can interrupt that flow of information back and forth or filter it and that's that's a concern I think it's really interesting politically because you have the uh, the left which believes uh, progressive forces and I think the Justice Department will continue the antitrust action they consider too much concentration of power in the hands of these companies so they do become too big to fail plus they have anti-consumer practices. And then the conservative side, because they think Silicon Valley's in, you know, just uh, with, associated with the left wing of politics and is skewing things that way. Twitter shuts down President Trump. So what right. does that do? And so, but you have the left and the right united. There aren't many issues that bring the two parties together in this way. And that's why it's such an interesting political vice 
that uh, that these two companies and others uh, find themselves. Well, maybe in. we should thank big tech for at least doing one thing. To, <laughs> yeah. to thank you, big tech, for us together. And so we will see how this unfolds. Um, there's a, so that's an issue that, that yeah. uh, decides, but on another breaking news item that, that divides the size, uh, Rush Limbaugh, uh, probably the most powerful man in American radio, uh, died uh, overnight. Yeah. Lung cancer signaled, every, it was quite well known. Uh, he announced uh, that he was ill. A, it was virtually a year ago when uh, President Trump awarded him the Congressional uh, the Medal of Honor. Um, right. Uh, in the joint session of, at the State of the Union address in the House chamber. It's quite an, uh, quite an amazing event. Yeah. And I was just wondering uh, your reflections on Limbaugh and what he meant for the American political landscape. Well, one thing that you could always trust um, with Rush Limbaugh is that he was going to, I mean, he had a point of view and he was very expressive and very influential. And I have to say, um, Rush Limbaugh has always been good to me. Um, uh, he he may not have always seen things the same way I have, but he was actually pretty good not to come after me on on radio, and I appreciate that. Did he come after you after President Trump came after you after you lost no. your seat? Not, no, you know, because I think from- I think on the left and the right, and especially the right, people were kind of nodding their heads or thinking, scratching their heads, thinking, "Well, what was that for?" Right. So, I mean, I've even heard from people in the administration themselves that they were just like, I don't, I, we don't know why he did that. I mean, that was, that was just, that was, that was really uncalled for, but um, I don't think any of them had any control um, over what he, he would say. Um, so no, he, Rush Limbaugh is a, you know, he is always going to be remembered. He left his legacy and he, he had a following unlike any other following I've seen. Um, and so he, he's going to be remembered for the things that he has said and um, his opinions and the influence that he had in conservative politics. And I, I, really, I, I really appreciate his voice, I do. Um, I think he engaged a lot of people in the political process and I can always appreciate that. He, he, he did engage a lot of people. A lot of people, though, were significant portions of the population are angry, have, were ang- have been angry with him for decades because of how he has expressed himself. Um, he, he, you know, called women, progressive women, feminazis. He was very anti-gay, you know, demeaned those who suffered from HIV at least some time ago. Um, but it became part of the dialogue. And so, in other words, you had mainstream conservatism. Yeah, I'm thinking of Bill Kristol. I'm thinking of Norman Podhoritz. I'm thinking of commentary. Uh, you know, and then you had th- this new edgy, you know, uh, these new, a new edgy voice that really motivated people and made, made our politics more hard, made our politics coarser. And right. I remember in 1994, when the Republicans took back the Congress, Newt Gingrich comes in, right, and succeeds. That Limbaugh saw that because I was listening to him that day because my cousin was beaten as governor of Michigan that night <laughs> in, the, in the Republican wave. And uh, Limbaugh said, uh, the cavalry has arrived. The revolution is here. We have prevailed. And it was a huge moment in American conservatism. Well, what's really interesting is no matter, you know, no matter whether you agreed with him or not, 
Um, Rush Limbaugh was pretty iconic in, in the United States. Um, he, uh, incredibly talented. I mean, I don't think anybody can, can deny that. And one of the things that I always say about the First Amendment um, and the ability for people to speak, it's not just for those who have something rational or, um, or effective, or it, it's not for those who just have something to say. It's even for those that sometimes we need to tolerate what they say because it is, it is a right, an, an individual right that's given to all of us. And I think that we need to remember that, that the First Amendment um, requires from all of us, I, I think, some tolerance and even some calling out and, and expression. Because I think that one of the things that whether you liked or not, Rush Limbaugh got people to engage in some very difficult conversations. And I think that those conversations are important to have and they're important to air out. And at least you know where you stand in, in, in some areas. So I've always said, just tell it to me straight. Don't lie to me, don't hide anything from me. I wanna know exactly where you stand and I'll do the same thing. Yeah, there was no backstabbing from Rush Limbaugh. It came right at you, so that was all right. Um, uh, let's turn to some political topics, if that's okay. Uh, no way, really? <laughs> politics? Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, before we get to impeachment, I just want to, let's go back to the election. Um, I, I was really interested in your take on Trump lost the election, but the Republicans did so well in the House races and in right. the races. Why is that? What, what explains that to you? And how, how's the party looking to, in your eye right well, now? As a matter of fact, we just actually gained another seat last week with Claudia Tenney in New York. So right. the House of Representatives was won by Nancy Pelosi by only 31,000 votes. Right. That's what separated the, the majority. So um, it's incredibly close. Um, a lot of races were close and the House of Representatives did a lot better than the president um, in terms of, um, you know, as a whole. And I think that there are a lot of Republicans that um, had a problem with with the leadership, um, had a problem with the, the Trump way of communication. Um, some Republicans in, I think, you look at Georgia, don't look, you don't have to look any further than Georgia. I firmly believe that he lost that Senate race for Republicans. There are a lot of McCain Republicans. I mean, it's a, it's a Republican majority in the House, a Republican governor, a Republican vice uh, um, lieutenant governor, uh, and that was supposed to have gone to Republicans. But that last rally, he went in, and I don't know if you saw that last rally, but he went after our own senator, um, Mike Lee, who, who was just out there like supporting him in Arizona not too long ago, had publicly endorsed him. He went after even Mike Pence, who is more loyal to him than anybody that I know of, that I've ever met. I mean, I would even say even more loyal than some of his family members. <laughs> so I think that that, that, was, that is why. It's because the language, the leadership, the abrasiveness in which he, and I don't want to say lead because I, I, I really want to talk to you about this later too, about leadership and what that really means and how that looks. But 
I think that, that that is the reason. And I think that if he would have been able to control his tone and his manner and Twitter and everything else, I think he would have won. I really do. Well, if you, you know, people point to 2016 and say there were like 77,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And if that's the, that was uh, Trump's margin, it was small. Well, well guess what? There was a bit less than 50,000 votes. It was about 40,000 votes in Georgia, Arizona, and, uh, and Wisconsin. And so, right. so Biden's margin in winning the same number of electoral votes was much less half of what Trump's was four years right. ago. Yeah, that is how close the election was. And people kind of don't appreciate that. It was very, very- Yeah, when you take these parts and you separate them, it paints a different picture than the whole clump together, which yeah. it's in these little areas that makes a big difference, right? Yeah. So any one of those areas by just a, just a few thousand votes could have flipped the entire election. That's so right. I think that that's really interesting um, as, as, we, as we look at elections and how elections are made. And you can see McConnell, I think Mitch McConnell, um, the Senate Minority Leader, is understa understands that. He understands how, how this is played. He, uh, I would not count him out. And um, I would actually say that Mitch McConnell is actually doing a, doing a good job um, for the Republican Party and saying, look, we need to move this president aside and we need to concentrate. Like he's got to an answer for the things that he's done, even though he didn't vote for impeachment, right? He's got to an answer to what he has done. And we've got to focus on, on leadership here, new leadership. That's, that's, that's what I wanted to get into as well. So we have this clumping together, but it's still dominated, at least right now, by Trump. And mm -hmm. I think um, it, it, it can mean, in the, well, how do Democrats see it? Well, this is not a bad thing, because if Trump is dominant in the party, and the party is dominating extremists uh, to run in you know, winning primaries, to go against Democrats, particularly in those suburban seats that the Republicans just took back, you know, because uh, right. they had... You know, Moderate, you had me, you know, a whole bunch of Mia loves around the country, right? Um, so if, if uh, the the selection, the pre-selection of extremist Republican candidate Trumpus, uh, therefore threatens those seats, a you may not be able to take back win those six seats you need to take control of the House or the one seat in the Senate, take control of the Senate, and uh, all this might just cut against the historical trend. Uh, midterm election, the president, the party in the White House generally loses seats in Congress in the midterm election. Uh, yeah. President Clinton elected in 92, House goes Republican in 94. Um, president Obama elected in 20, 2008, House goes Republican 2010. Uh, Clint, uh, Trump elected 2016, House goes uh, Democratic 2018. Right. 2020. What happens 2022 with this huge dominance of Trump of the party? I mean, is it if, if nothing changes, mark my words, Republicans are going to be facing opposition that they have never faced before. Because for the most part, Republicans are doing the job that Democrats would normally do. So you are going to see on the campaign trail, um, I think this is where, this is where Donald Trump actually um, uses his voice, his power, is that he actually goes after Republicans that weren't with him. And so now you've got Republicans that are fighting 
um, not just the narrative on the Democrat side, but a big force on the Republican side. And what should I think should be a landslide where Republicans should take the House and um, really should take the House by a pretty good majority. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult if that nothing changes and Republicans do not get it together and form new leadership and find a way to get Trump supporters without Trump, it's gonna be a major problem. I thought it was really interesting in Utah um, and you're sitting, uh, I believe, just south of Salt Lake in your home. Um, yeah where you had Mitt Romney, you know, who has been out there. He was the sole Republican to vote in impeachment one, and then joined with six other, six other Republicans joined him in impeachment two. And Mike Lee, whom you mentioned earlier, uh, voted against impeachment, of course, but the Utah Republican Party came out with this pretty extraordinary statement saying, well, our right. senators differed on this, and they came to it as a matter of, of conscience and constitutional study of the law and everything. And, and we celebrate our two senators because of what it means about the political process. And I thought that was a really interesting way to, to handle yeah. it. Now, you know, I know that there are a lot of people that put me in so many different categories, and I'm okay with that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I have been called a moderate. I have been called a constitutional conservative. I've been called, and I love that, because what that means for me is that um, I preserve the right for somebody, an elected official, to make decisions and the consequences come at the ballot. They do not come from, from people who believe that they, that they should censure. What's happening in Arizona with my friend Doug Ducey, Governor Ducey is absolutely, um, widow, um, John McCain's widow. Um, what's happened to all of these people because they were able to voice an opinion that was in opposition of one person, I think is absolutely, it really um, changes the dynamics of the way our democracy works. And um, there, there's so much to say about this, but the one thing I'm going to mention is I'm actually proud of our um, Utah um, GOP um, office because they realize that where this happens is not with them. They are not going to. They are not going to um, do what should be done at the at the ballot. Um, people, we've forgotten that it's really people who should change the way or change work out the dynamics of Washington. Right. Um, it's not those in power, and. I think that what that that statement was really strong, and I love the fact that you heard about this statement. And um, there, it's actually being people are seeing it all throughout the country here in the United States. I think it made a powerful um, it, it made a powerful statement that the party is going to support all Republicans and do the opposite of what Donald Trump is doing. Right. Right. And which brings us to uh, 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 we're going to get to Joe Biden and how the Democrats are doing in a, in a minute, but. A last question uh, directly on the Republicans, because this really brings up Kevin McCarthy, um, who is yeah. the Republican leader in the House. He is uh, six seats shy of being the speaker. Um, he did something quite extraordinary in protecting um, Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney, number three in the House, the whip, who was under severe challenge because she voted to impeach President Trump, but at the same time made enough room for, I'm, I'm just gonna, she's a QAnon nut job in Georgia, and, uh, made, and you know, 
most of the party did not want her thrown off uh, the committees right. on which he, and that's where ultimately he was. So, but you know him well, and you're in touch with I him, do. I know. And tell us, um, without violating any confidences or anything, oh, go ahead, violate a couple confidences, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell us about uh, McCarthy, how you see him, and, uh, uh, and what might happen, particularly with him and Biden, and the Biden agenda over this year, and then we can talk about Joe Biden. So um, McCarthy is is a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, and I know I keep saying this, but um, he actually is, um, the last time he was in Utah, I was actually able to steal him from his detail. And we <laughs> jumped in a car. We weren't supposed to do that. We jumped in a car and went to get some ice cream. Uh -oh. um, he, he <laughs> but he is a, he, you know, he's trying to navigate through this whole thing also. I did mentioned to him, as I did on TV, that I thought it was a bad idea to go and visit the president um, or the former president um, after the insurrection. I thought that it was more important for him to focus on the turmoil and the disarray that was happening inside of the House. Now we had Representative Matt Gates um, go to uh, Liz Cheney's district and campaign against her and, and talk about voting her out. Um, McCarthy, he has an opportunity here to stand up and be a leader for the Republican Party and start talking about those ideas that I believe in, those, those same ideas that my parents immigrated from Haiti to the United States for, right? It's free markets. And I mean, you, you, my parents dealt with the Duvaliers. We talked about this. So they knew exactly um, what, they, who, what party they wanted to affiliate with. I grew up as a Reagan Republican. Um, where you say, if, if, if you're 80% with me, then you're 80% my friend. Um, so McCarthy really has the ability and I think the opportunity to show new leadership, to say, look, this is what the Republican Party believes in and really start going in and saying, you guys need to cut it out. You need to cut it out. And I would also say this, Liz Cheney is a tough cookie. She can take it. Yeah. And if it weren't for Liz Cheney, I believe that people like Steve King would still be there. It wasn't until she actually said, we're going to strip him of his, of his committees. They've, we've dealt with this for a long time. I've dealt with Steve King in, right. in the conference. This, that wasn't the first time. I mean, this is years and years of, um, of language that was offensive. So Liz Cheney was the first person that said, we're not going to have this. We're going to strip um, Steve King of his, of his um, committees. And I think that what she did actually was, whether, whether I agree with it or not, it was actually beneficial to the Republican Party because it said, look, we, are, we don't owe anyone but our districts an explanation. And it is, it is a way for her to separate Republicans by her vote from Donald Trump. Right. Okay, Let's, uh, we'll come back to this a little bit because there is a issue <laughs> of, you know, how does McCarthy and this party, you know, what do they do with Joe Biden? Well, let's talk about Joe Biden and the, the Democrats and the administration and so forth for a little mm -hmm. bit. I, mean, I consider this the first week of Biden's presidency because all of the Trump stuff is now behind us, behind him. 
And I thought it was interesting on CNN last night when he was asked about it. He said, I don't want to talk about Trump, you know, and Jen Psaki from the press room doesn't. And, and like, why? It's, uh, it's uh, any minute of coverage of Trump means there's not a minute of coverage of Biden. And, uh, right. and not on his Twitter platform, which is one of the most profound developments, I think, of the year, uh, because he's not the alternative president. And I think that right. really also helps Joe Biden. And, uh, and it, it just seems to me um, in how he, what he, why he entered the race, Charlottesville, wanting to bring America together, and what his program was, which was very direct, and he's been very consistent about it. I'm going to control the pandemic. We're going to roll out the vac vaccination program. We're going to have an economic recovery. And I'm going to deal with racial justice and climate and immigration and infrastructure. So it's a very, just forget about the policies for a moment that go into each of those things. It's a very centered um, program with the urgency behind it to deal with an America that's close to 500,000 dead from this uh, virus today. Yeah, yeah. And it just has to be brought to an end responsibly, science, medicine, you know, all the things that will help make that happen. And he's been singularly focused on it. And, and, I, and, and so I, I think it's, um, and he seems to have had a very good start. Um, his approval rating is well north of 50%, close to 60, more, higher than Trump ever had. Well, the, I mean, it doesn't take much. I mean, it's not it's like, so this, far, right? I mean, let's be, let's be frank. If we're going to be frank, let's be frank. I mean, it just didn't, I mean, he, it, you just have to be somewhat kind, right? <laughs> <laughs> Your approval rating is higher than Trump's. Thank goodness for I that. I mean, <laughs> so, so, you know, there are, look, I appreciate, um, I appreciated that Biden wouldn't talk about Trump. I don't want to talk about it. I think it's bad for the country. I think it's bad for the party. Yeah. I think actually, I will mention this, that the more um, the House of, the more Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer can put Trump out there and continue to say Trump, 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 the better it is for the party, right? But in terms of governing and actually getting through the pandemic, I think that um, Joe Biden did the right thing by saying, look, I've got to focus on the stimulus. I've got to focus on, you know, getting kids back to school. I don't even want to talk about Trump. I think that that's the right thing for him to do. That's exactly right. And this is governing time. And, um, and then I think how you govern and the politics of it uh, goes back to when I was last on the Hill in when Obama was elected. And Leslie and I went back to Washington and I worked in Congress with Henry Waxman on the committee through which most of the Obama legislative program went particularly Obamacare and a whole bunch of other stuff. And what the committee did then is exactly what the House committees are doing this week, meeting on the American Recovery Plan, doing their pieces of the legislation will be packaged together, could go to a vote on the House later next week or the week after. And what we learned then, a lot was done, but was enough done. And the economic recovery program that Obama did because there was the Great Recession and it was to get it out, was to go go big, but it ultimately turned out not big enough. He did want and needed Republican support in the Senate to pass it. He ultimately got three votes, uh, including Olympia Snow and, and Susan Collins and um, from Pennsylvania, Spectre. And, but the price of those votes was to hold the price tag down to about $800 billion, not, less than a trillion. And that meant, and that was enacted, and it did a job but it didn't do enough of a job. And unemployment 
shrunk, but not fast enough. And unemployment was very high, even though it was the, the country was growing and in recovery mode through the 2010 election and they lost the house. There are a whole bunch right. of other- I came, yeah. So that was just a few years before I came in, but that That's was right. a major majority. That's right. So the, so the point, so what has Biden learned from that and what is he applying now? And, and you hear it from his lips directly, I'm gonna go big and I'm gonna go fast. And, and he did meet with 10 Republicans uh, from the Senate, which is what you right. need to get the supermajority requirement. But he's not waiting for them to come on to his, he's, he's moving. And now that may look like an unfair choice to them. You know, why are you muscling us? We wanna work with you and you're not giving us time to work with you. But he knows if he doesn't, by the end of the summer, if that pandemic is not under control and the economy coming back strongly and people have jobs and the schools are open, he knows his president could be his presidency could be viewed as a failure. Look, and being really a president, being a president is not easy. And I understand um, that he's got a lot of work to do and you have to rise to the occasion. Usually you have to perform these impossible tasks, but there are some issues he's got to deal with. One is before the pandemic, the economy here was doing really well. Unemployment in the state among Americans, especially among Black Americans, were just at an all-time low. I can't even tell you about the state of Utah. The biggest problem that Utah had was it was hard to keep people because there were such great paying jobs out there that, I mean, you could go anywhere. Um, unfortunately, with all of the talk about unity, um, there has not been a stimulus bill that has been passed that has not been bipartisan. So I think that it would be a big mistake for the president to not look at people like Mitt Romney, who was in that office, or even Mike Lee, who was in that office, who have got some pretty good amendments that they could, that they could work with him on and gain some um, bipartisan support. And also, I think you and I talked about this, he's got some room he's got to he's got a mountain he's got to climb in all of the talk about unity there are so many really good republicans that he could have chosen to put on the cabinet and he didn't um and that is something that i know that is talked about in so many different circles that it's all talk and no action and so there are a lot of people that i think that are going to be pretty skeptical about what comes out in the package and whether he's listening to the far left arm um, as opposed to being um, doing what's right for, for, for America and the American public. I think the point on the cabinet is well taken. And I think people were looking for a Republican appointee to the cabinet. Obama had yeah. a Republican cabinet, uh, kept on Gates as uh, secretary. Of That's Defense right. And so forth. So I absolutely understand that. Um, as far as uh, uh, meeting them, on the on the, the the recovery package, he's at 1.9 trillion. The, the 10 senators had 600 billion. That's a, that's a huge huge gap, and it took months to solve that gap last year when the recovery you know the stimulus program went by went uh, was passed just before Christmas. And I guess I think I think Biden and I've talked with his people. I think they absolutely understand what is being said. But the need to move is so great that they're going to move. And I think it means they're going to move with reconciliation and not have Republican support. And that even though um, this does not bring the two parties together, working in a bipartisan way, 
Biden believes it will bring the country together because it will deliver for the country. And that is a very, you know, that's a really hard-nosed uh, political calculation. You know, you go for what is going to give you political capital with the country that you can then use back on the Hill for uh, racial justice, for immigration, for education, for infrastructure. These are the calculations that they're making. And um, if I had a message to the 10 senators, I would say you come as close as you possibly can to 1.9 and what you want changed and get those amendments to him like now. And, uh, and, and, and if they really wanna do the deal, that's, I think that's what's required to do the deal. Otherwise, this thing is going. And, on, and just one further point of reconciliation, it is an unusual procedure, but uh, I was on the Hill in 1981 when Ronald Reagan did the first reconciliation to ram through um, his tax cut and spending cut bill. It was the biggest tax bill at the time. This is 1981. And uh, uh, Obama used it on Obamacare and Trump used it for the tax cut that he did, his trillion dollar tax cut. That was done on reconciliation. So it's not like new. Uh, and I understand all you're saying about uh, finding a modus vivendi with the Republicans, but um, time is short. and. This is a time for, you're saying Biden needs to show goodwill. I think the Republicans need to show goodwill too. I really hope both sides do. But you know, the person that's out there talking about being unified is the president. And like I said, you know, Biden was just elected. And I fear, I, I understand what you're saying and, and the need to push things through. Um, but everything has a cost. Yeah. one way or the other, and you have to weigh those out. And I'm just saying that I think on in showing some good faith, especially, I think he actually would have had a little bit more wiggle room had he had somebody in the administration that was a Republican that he was working with. And there's so many he could have picked. I mean, Carlos Corbello, Jeff Denham, Mitt. I mean, there's so many people he could have picked that would have worked with him in good will. Um, so that way it kept a president balance. And I think that that's one of the best things that President Obama did, because he could always say, look, I'm listening to people advising me from all ends. I just want to do what's best for the American public. So President Obama had that. Um, and and I, I just, again, this is going to be, the stimulus package is going to be something that comes back that, um, you know, people don't want just a blanket fix, right? They, they want something that's a little bit more targeted so that we actually help people that really need the help. And the big problem that we have in Washington is that so many things go to administering programs, brick and mortar, that very few of the funds actually go to people that actually need it. So it'll be interesting. I think what's important is he's got to, he's got to balance making sure he gets the economy going again, because if you can't feed your family, you're, you're, that becomes the number one it's thought. Over. It's over. It becomes the number one thought in your head and getting people healthy. So he's got a tough hill to climb. I'm not saying that it's, it's easy. I'm not telling him what to do. I'm actually saying it's going to be difficult for him to check all of these boxes. I agree. It is going to be difficult. Um, I am impressed, though, the absence of a, of a Republican or two aside. I am impressed with the quality of his nominees and the, and the people around him, they, they just strike me as deeply experienced. Uh, they know the landscape, they know their issues, the landscape. And a lot of people have thought, well, this is gonna be this, 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 the third Obama term. And so all the mistakes that were made, did they learn anything? 
I actually think that they have learned a lot on everything from Iran to what, you, what we're seeing played out now on the domestic side. Yeah. And you're not going to see, it's just not a knee-jerk re replay. In other words, Mia, if you got back in Congress, you would be a, an even smarter member of Congress than you were you know, a couple of years ago. And you would do things differently. And, uh, and I think the same applies there. So I am impressed with the team and how they're executing. And if you look at the panoply of mistakes, well, larger point, Biden's the most experienced person to come into the presidency, I think perhaps ever, uh, in terms of length of service in the Senate, eight years as vice president. I was surprised. Uh, I read that he said he had never been in the living quarters of the White House before. So hmm. I, I was going to say that he knew the White House even better than Trump knew the White House, but I guess Trump knew the living quarters better than Biden did. So right, right. <laughs> we won't go there. Well, uh, he's got, like I said, he's got, he, he has to have, I mean, he has to remember and it's one of the things that I think that Trump didn't lead on. He has to remember that this country is pretty divided. And we, I mean, they're, they're almost half the country voted for Donald Trump, right? And so right. Um, you have to become a president for all people when you become a president. And um, it's one of the things that I knew when I became a, um, a representative for the fourth district, there were some decisions that I made that for me personally wasn't a good decision, but I knew it was um, a great decision for the district. And also I went in to Washington, not being as, um, I wouldn't say not being environmentally conscious, but I would say not as, not really, looking to legislate or lead on that. And it wasn't until a group um, called the climate, um, the Citizens Climate Lobby came to me and said, we just need a voice. We don't care what party you are. Most of us belong to the Democrat party, but we will support you and help you lead on this issue. And we're just, we just want someone to listen to us. And they got me involved and aware and able to lead in that issue that a lot of Republicans didn't lead on. And it came from a place of, I don't care what letter you have behind your name. I just want, I want to work with you on an issue that was important to me. And gosh, this world would be such a much better place if we just forgot about some of those things and got to the business of doing work for people. You, uh, it would be really nice. Uh, and uh, just looking at some questions that have come in, there's uh, Nick Buford from uh, Georgia. He says, uh, me, it's Nick. Um, if there's, if there's one issue, there's one issue you could lead the GOP in messaging to build a more winnable national coalition for the future. What would be the issue and how would you message it? So first of all, let me say Nick is a person that is in the know. He's in Georgia. He was um, just working in the office during all of this. So um, Nick is a very uh, informed individual. So I appreciate, I appreciate what um, his question. And I just want to say that we need to start getting back to the things that my parents believed in. And I, and, and I just want to say this really quickly because it means so much to me. And this is the reason why I'm here. When my parents um, immigrated to the United States, they said that they studied American history. They studied the constitution. They learned the English language and they were willing to take on not just the benefits of being a member of the United States, but the responsibilities of being a citizen of the United States. 
And when they pledged their allegiance to the American flag, they knew exactly what they were doing and they meant every word of it. We've forgotten or have stopped talking about the American dream and that it's not for everyone. My parents' dream wasn't to get rich and own a home. Their dream was to raise their children in a place where they can get educated and they can have um, work and be able to contribute to other people. That was their dream. And then when you get to that, only in America could two people come to this country with $10 in their pocket and end up having the first black Republican ever elected, female ever elected to Congress. When you, that's the America I know. And we need to get back to that messaging. We're not abrasive. We're not, I mean, we're, we're compassionate people. And we believe that it is our job to sacrifice a little bit of ourselves voluntarily to make sure our neighbors can be lifted. I think you're uh, exactly right. I think Biden is, is there, but louder voices, uh, Ray, I'm thinking of Reagan, Clinton and Obama, uh, the, the American dream was uh, a core part of their message and their appeal uh, to uh, the wi wider constituencies across the country. And so we will see. But um, I, I want to raise, you were the first black Republican woman elected to Congress. And I want to ask about another first, Kamala Harris, African-American, Indian descent, the first woman vice president. Um, how do you see her so far? What advice would you have for her? What should she watch out for? I would say when you become, the, the advice I would say, I, I would give um, Kamala would be, you know, there are a lot of things that you want to push through. And sometimes you have to put your uh, own agenda aside and really take note and, um, and, and realize what the tone of the American public is. Because sometimes we get so tunnel focused and, and just we, we have these things that we need to check off and in their minds, they only have a certain amount of time to do it. There are times where you have to sit back and I would say go to places where people don't expect you to go. Get, get, go to places where you don't think they like you, but they may need you. And that's what, I think that's what leadership is. Leadership is not, not sitting in on a couch or in an overall office, having people do your bidding for you, right? For a cause that is just for you, but it's actually marching with people for a cause that is beyond yourself. That's what leadership is. And sometimes this all is a sacrifice, but I think that the country is worth it. So the only advice I would give her would be sit back, listen, and sometimes realize that the next thing that you have to do um, may not be for you, but or it may not even fit your agenda, but would be good for somebody else. And I think, I think the fact that she is a black woman of color, I think that should be celebrated. I think that that's, that's nice. That's a barrier that somebody else has broken down and maybe we'll get a Republican black female president. I, Mia, I think the convention, I don't know where the convention is being held in 2024, but I sure as hell hope you're there. That's what I would say. <laughs> So um, I think that's great advice for her. Um, and I, I'm impressed by, uh, first of all, she's going to change tremendously. The job changes you. She see, she's seeing things that she never saw before. She's thinking about issues that she's never thought about before, and not in depth in the same way she was on the Intelligence Committee, of course, but it's a, it's a whole different um, order of magnitude. And, uh, and that will change her, and she'll, she'll be deeper 
and she is deep, but you know, you just, you, it's, you really, she strengthens her, her, her mind, her presence, her persona and so forth. Um, it, even though she doesn't have a specific portfolio, although vice presidents always get space, you know, I don't know why vice presidents always get space, but she's probably going to get space. But she, she, um, uh, I'm impressed that she is in every meeting where Biden, is, she is always there. And so she, it seems to me that she has been a full participant in staffing the administration, in the cabinet selections, in the political decisions, the legislative program, the sequencing, you know, all the, everything. There's a and lot to I, learn, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a lot. And I think what Biden wanted was for her to be vice president to him as he was for Obama. And it, of complete trust, she, she, has her, she has his back, she supports it, she supports what he's doing. And uh, I, it's reported, I believe she got what uh, Biden had, the last person in the room to talk to the president before a major decision is made, the two of them just talking, so that the president has the benefit of where the vice president is to make a final decision. And so I see all that unfolding along those lines. And I think what you've added to it in terms of what she, how she could, what her posture is, her outreach, you know, where, how she's positioned, I think that's just really smart. And, uh, and I'm sure she's, it'd be great to see her do that. So I really hope that, I really hope that happens. Um, uh, what else do you want to talk about? I have one other big issue, but what else do you want to talk about this morning while we got a little time and no one's listening? What do you think? I, I actually am curious to see how um, how Australia um, took what was happening in Washington um, and what it, it I, I think it's important to find out whether you um, solely put this at the feet of a of the president or or people because I think that there to me, I've taken this and, and I've had to process this whole thing. And you do that so that you, you if you're ever involved, you have a way of fixing the problem or, or making sure it doesn't happen again. So I guess I'm curious as the world, as you, outside looking in, what the thoughts were and um, when you saw what happened January 6th at the Capitol. Uh, people were uh, shocked and horrified, uh, and they uh, had never, no, none of us had ever seen anything like that before. I'm sure that's the same feeling that you had as I had. People have worked in the building. We never imagined that such scenes would be possible. At the same time, at the end of the day, the leaders of Congress coming together to reconvene the session to complete its constitutional duty, that was of the highest importance and a tribute to everyone, from Mitch, uh, from Mitch McConnell, the vice president, the speaker of the House. Fantastic. But here, people were, were just reeling from it, and um, it made people think again because of all the tumult and drama after November 3rd about how fragile American democracy had become, that it yeah. was stretched to its limits uh, by, uh, this by that president and what he did. And people were really afraid of what he might be still, if, if that occurred on January 6th, what else could he do before he left office and we would be you know, safer because he was no longer in office? Um, but but all this, all the, that the intensity of that feeling reflected four years. Uh, you know, Australia wakes up your afternoon. So and the overnight news, the first news item early in the morning is generally from the United States. And so the whole country was waking up for four years, saying, "Well, what the hell did that guy do last night?" And so okay, had, so what what would you do? This is this is great because I I'm really curious as um, what advice would you give to the Republican Party? 
Oh, I, I would become, um, get rid of the extreme, the, the middle should dominate the extremes and, 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 and really put them on the edge where they belong. You know, it can never eviscerate all of them. But I, I, think that's, I think that's the most important thing. Restore some sense of bipartisanship. It is, of course, it's a responsibility of the president to do what he can do, but it's a responsibility of the Republican leadership as well, and the caucus and the members to do what they can do. The perception here is, because Trump still is dominant, that the extreme side is winning and, and that there is no, and so they see America, there's a civil war perhaps in the Republican party and they don't see and that, that, that the country is weakened because of these divisions uh, in the house uh, on which it stands. And uh, uh, so I, th I still think people are troubled by where the country is going in its future. And also it really important thing how COVID was mishandled completely compared to Australia. We have maybe two dozen cases in the whole country and you have, have 500,000 dead and 100,000 a day. Uh, and so is what's occurring in America, sadly, I mean, is America a failed state in some regards? People are asking themselves these questions. And so the rebuilding is going to be quite enormous. Look, Bruce, I am an optimist. I am a patriot. I am a, I'm a wife. I'm a mother. And I am an American. And I... Um, I believe that our country has been through some tough things before, and I have every, um, every hope and every confidence that the American people will find their way through this. I really do, because we have, we have been challenged, um, we have been pushed, and it's always the people that decide, okay, I am, I've had enough. I, it's time for us to take our country back in some way, shape or form, right? We've been, I, I mean, I can, I can name it all. We've been through a civil war, right? We've been through all of that. And in some cases we're, we're in that today. But I also think that the United States um, has to find a way to take the people that saw something in Donald Trump and give them new leadership because you're talking about a massive group of people that you cannot, there's a reason why they're so angry. And yes, I understand they were um, misled and they were, they, they, the president fed on those things, but we have to find a way to grab these people and say, we hear you, we understand you, and we're going to move forward. 